Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today we're going to explore the true crime story of the murder of Nellie Griffin, which happened in 1891. This case sent a shockwave across the state of Michigan, not only for the nature of the murder, but more so for how Nellie wound up in the hands of this murderer and she was essentially handed over by a superintendent when she was up for adoption into the killer's hands. And it's a sad story looking at the adoption system of the 1800s and how unregulated they were compared to what we might expect today. So it's an interesting look into history of 150 years ago. Okay, so to begin, let's start with who Nellie Griffin's family were and how she wound up in what was known as the public school system. Uh, She was a child up for adoption in Coldwater, Michigan at the Coldwater Public School. And uh, we'll go into that part of the story here in a minute. Her parents were Oliver and Della Griffin. Oliver was the son of R.F. Griffin. And he had previously been a mayor of Mason, Michigan. And he was a fairly wealthy farmer back in the day. His son apparently started his own farm. And he married Della who was a young lady who was serving as a servant girl in a family by the name of Clark over in Mason. And she met Oliver Griffin. He was a bit of a simple-minded man. He wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, as all the articles seem to describe him from his family. And they had a child in September of 1881. And that child was Nellie Griffin. Now, the trouble arose in the family when the couple separated when Nellie was three years old. Essentially what happened is Oliver could no longer work. He had had an accident and had his hand cut off. So they fell into poverty and Della decided to take off and leave the scene. Just leave the whole scene. She left her child behind in the care of her husband, assuming that her husband's family would take care of the child because they were wealthy. And what happened after she left, which she didn't know, was that Oliver decided to take off too. And he went to California and presumably never to be heard from again. He never came back to Michigan. Della wound up in Grand Rapids, continuing to work as a servant in some other household over in the Grand Rapids area. And Nellie wound up with her grandparents, Now, when the case came out about Nellie and how she wound up in the public school system or the uh, being a child up for adoption down in Coldwater and the whole after her murder, there was a lot of criticism of the grandparents of why did you put her there? And the story behind that eventually came out in the Jackson Citizen Patriot on an article published on February 12th, 1891. This is after Nellie Griffin died. And the grandparents were wanting to take care of the child. And here's how they describe what happened. Nellie was a bright, handsome girl, but she grew in years and she also grew in waywardness and her father nor grandparents seemingly having any control over her. She would be found at all hours of the night hiding in dark stairways or some other 
out-of-the-way places and was a continual source of torment to the neighbors. So apparently she would wander off in the middle of the night and show up at other people's houses hiding in dark spaces. And the statements, as defined in this article, is that the neighbors became very concerned. And so with Nellie's continued waywardness, as it was described, and their relative inability to control her actions, the neighbors got aroused and they took the matter into their own hands. And they went with earnest solicitation to the authorities in the area. And a hearing was held and they wanted to send her over to Adrian, which was a different school, at, and that was what their neighbors were requesting. But the hearing made the determination to put her in the charge of the superintendents of the poor, which was a institution in the state of Michigan at that time period. And I have carried a story on the Calhoun County poor farm in a previous episode, and this stems out of that there were poor farms all over the state in roughly 22 counties or so. And children as well as adults were sent there when they were unable to care for themselves or were destitute or poor and often children that were orphans or their parents were no longer around to care for them. And so even against the grandparents' protest to this hearing, they pressured the grandparents into signing over Nellie to the superintendents of the poor who placed her in the public school in Coldwater. And when they used the term public school back in the 1800s, it was a government-controlled school that the children stayed there. It was essentially a government orphanage, very similar to the setup for the poor farm, and it was run by the superintendents of the poor. And there was a very prominent school in Coldwater. Um, I did an episode um, earlier this year on some of the history of Coldwater, and I mentioned the location of that school and some of the history behind it. And if you look up some of the history of Coldwater on the City of Coldwater's website, you will find some references and historical background on the Coldwater School. So Nellie was sent to the Coldwater School when she was eight years old on December 17th, 1888. Now, I first came across this story in a book published by the Eaton County Historical Commission called Right on Track, and they have an article on the Nellie Griffin story in this book. And it's mainly about railroad history because this story somewhat relates to the railroad, and you'll understand why as I read it. So Nellie was 11 years old in 1891, and this is when her fate took a dark turn, and it's really a very sad story from here on out. So I'll read you what was written here in this book by the Eaton County Historical Commission, and then I'm going to also include a lot of information from several articles that I looked up to piece this story together so you can get kind of a context of what happened. So in this story, which they entitled The Murder of Nellie Griffin, it reads, The Diamonddale Depot was also part of a brutal murder back in 1891. They mention that she's 14 years old in this article, but all references state that she was 11, and her mother, in an article written in the Grand Rapids Press, stated that the indication that she was 14 was wrong, that uh, Nellie was actually 11 years old. Uh, so Nellie was originally from Mason and was placed in the Coldwater School. It was also known as the State School for Waifs and Neglected Children. Her life had been very rough, 
for one so young, even before her first birthday. Nellie and her father were abandoned by her mother. It actually happened when she was three, per the article by her mother. Mortified by this disgrace, her father fled to California and vanished from her life. And then it says Nellie ended up in the Coldwater School. But we know that she ended up with her grandparents for a time. And the neighbors pressured something to be done about this curl that was just showing up all over the place in the, in the community without anybody supervising her. And the grandparents apparently had no control. And the father was gone and the mother was gone and so forth. So that's how she ended up at the Coldwater School. Now, here's where it gets into a very dark part of the story. A man by the name of Russell C. Canfield, who was aged 55, went to the school to find a child to adopt, he told the superintendent of the school. He gave his name as G. Hendershot, claiming to be a well-to-do farmer who had much to offer the child. The child would be raised with his own and would learn all the needed domestic tasks. The school superintendent let him leave with Nellie, despite not knowing the man and taking no steps to verify anything Canfield told them. So essentially, Russell Canfield showed up at the Coldwater School and presented a story, said he was of a different name by the name of Hendershot. And I'm going to sidestep from the story and read you what actually was written by the school superintendent or told by the school superintendent to the newspaper. And this was published in the South Haven Sentinel on February 7th, 1891. And the incident when um, Canfield came to get Nellie or get a girl or a child at the Coldwater School occurred in late January. And so here's the article. It says, and it was, this was originally published in Coldwater on February 4th. In an interview with Superintendent Newkirk, the state school gave his reasons for letting the girl Nellie Griffith go with Hendershot as follows. The man's general appearance was good, that of an ordinary thrifty farmer. He was gentlemanly appearing, with an honest face, and had represented himself as a Christian man. Mr. Newkirk called the county agent of Jackson County by telephone and asked him regarding Hendershot, requesting him to investigate and if he could give any reason why he should not let the child go with Hendershot to telegram him before Wednesday noon. The understanding being that if no reply was received, it should be understood that Hendershot was all right. No telegram being received at the train time, the girl was allowed to depart with him. So that is what Newkirk, the school superintendent, stated to the Coldwater newspaper as the reason he released the child into the hands of the man he believed to be known as Hendershot. So the story in the Eaton County Historical Commission continues, and Canfield was twice married with both of his wives leaving him. His plan is believed that he was to adopt this girl and then marry her when she was of age, despite still being married to his second wife. This, he hoped, would stop the teasing he received from his neighbors after being unable to hold on to his wife. After securing her from the Coldwater School, he brought Nellie by train to Jonesville and then on to Diamonddale. They got off the train there and started walking towards the Harrison Farm 
where Canfield worked as a truck driver, hauling milk to the condensed milk company in Lansing. Despite the girl begging him to take her back to Coldwater, Canfield took her into the woods and essentially sat down by a log. The girl was protesting, didn't want to go with him, and was just probably throwing a fit. And so Canfield, rather than returning to Coldwater and bringing her back, got into a rage and murdered the girl. He left her body in an ice hole in the Grand River and simply left. He walked back up to the road and returned to his life as usual. The body was discovered by somebody within a short amount of time. Apparently, she was found within a day or two of the incident. But they couldn't identify who the body was. And so she was cleaned up for burial by the village undertaker in Diamonddale. And photos were taken of her face in hopes that she would eventually be identified. Copies of the photos were sent all around the countryside. People came from all around the area to try to identify the girl because they were very concerned. It was a young girl. They didn't know she was 11. They assumed she was young. They just didn't know how old she was necessarily. The first clue to the crime came when the body was identified by a conductor named Shipman and a brakeman named Moulton of the Lake Shore and Michigan Railroad, and they identified her as a poorly clad child who was on the train and who was accompanied by an old man. The officials of the public school at Coldwater later were able to identify the body as that of Nellie Griffin from the photographs, who had been adopted a few days prior prior by an old man giving himself the name of Hendershot. So an active search was instituted for this man named Hendershot. And how they found out it was uh, Canfield is not exactly known, but they identified from the description of an old man and the timing of the man leaving and arriving back at work, they found him at the Harrison Farm near Diamonddale, where he was employed. And he was brought before the conductor and the brakeman who identified him as the man that they saw with Nellie. So they've connected all the dots. They've got a positive identification of Canfield as being the man who was traveling with Nellie on the train. And they brought him before the school superintendent in Coldwater. And he also positively identified him as the man who represented himself as Hendershot. And so Canfield was arrested and taken to Charlotte, where he broke down and confessed. Now, it's speculated that he confessed because he knew there was a lynch mob that was going to deliver country justice to him, even if he didn't confess and was released. So in his confession, he described how it all took place. He sat down on a log by the water where the body was found. The girl began to cry, Canfield said, and I threw her on the ground and choked her to death with one hand. I did not outrage the girl. I have no idea why I killed her. I must have been insane. And that was his testimony. So with his confession to the crime, probably once again to avoid a lynch mob, an hour later, Canfield was on a Michigan Central train on his way to Jackson Prison to serve a life sentence. So they put him before the judge almost immediately. And there's even articles in the newspaper saying that from 18 hours of the time he was arrested, he was in Jackson Prison serving a life sentence. It was like quick justice. And the case in Michigan seemed to be like one of those murder of the century type cases. And I'm sure there was a lot of speculation that he had raped the girl. And this case drew a lot of attention across the state. And not only was it a horrendous crime, but also the circumstances that turned over guardianship to him of this little girl and how they came to be on that train. 
So we're going to explore some of that in some of the articles of what happened afterward. And essentially, two major things happened after this incident. The first was a huge public outcry against the Coldwater School and the superintendent, Mr. Newkirk. The public demanded a full investigation into Newkirk and the whole circumstances of, of why he allowed the girl to be released into the hands of this man. And Newkirk, of course, explained why he did it. As I mentioned before, he apparently made a superficial attempt to verify this Hendershot, but essentially the man was hoodwinked and he knew it. He knew that this guy came in with a ruse and he fell for it. The congenial farmer coming in looking to adopt a child, put to work on the farm, and he bought the whole story and never verified identity, never verified the existence of Hendershot, never was able to verify the man's story or anything. You know, remember, this is 1891. This is not something where he could have gone on the internet or made a telephone call to a local police department or did an FBI background check or anything like that. It was completely... You know, telegrams were the main form of long-distance communication, and there was really nobody from Coldwater that knew anyone over in Diamonddale to be able to verify who this guy was. But irregardless, Newkirk knew that he made a mistake. He heard all the pressure from the public. He probably felt terrible. Obviously, the girl died. He made a huge blunder by not slow-walking the whole application process or just taking the guy in face value without doing anything to verify and putting into his hands the care of Nellie. So he resigned under the pressure. So he submitted his resignation to the Board of Control, which was over him as a superintendent of the Coldwater School. And this article came out in the Hillsdale Standard. It was published on April 7th, 1891. And here's what happened following that resignation. The Board of Control of the State Public School met at Coldwater last week and completed their investigation of the school under the past year's superintendency of Mr. Newkirk. The investigation takes in the Nellie Griffin case, following upon which it will be remembered that Superintendent Newkirk, in response to the almost universal censor which followed upon the murder of the girl, tendered his resignation. The Board of Control, in the report of the school, refuses to accept of Mr. Newkirk's resignation while at the same time using the following language in regard to his action. Regarding the acceptance of the resignation of Mr. Newkirk as superintendent of the school, which has been formally tendered to us, we desire to say that we are not unmindful of the very serious results that have arisen in the case of Nellie Griffin from a technical violation of the law and the regulations of this board. None deplore that result more than ourselves, and we are and always have been emphatic in every condemnation of any violation of the rules and regulations of the school. We hesitate not to say that Mr. Newkirk committed a grave error in allowing Nellie Griffin to go out from the school under the circumstances attending her departure. On the other hand, we are so strongly impressed after a critical and prolonged examination of Mr. Newkirk's work in connection with all departments of the school that we have arrived at the unanimous conclusion not to accept his resignation. 
we take this position in the firm belief that by such action we are consulting the highest interests of the dependent children of the state. This conclusion is emphasized and confirmed by the unanimous testimony of a large portion of the county agents, representative men, whose duties involve the placing of dependent children in homes, thus bringing them into an intimate acquaintance with the superintendent regarding his eminent fitness for the position. And then it was signed by the members of that board. So that's kind of shocking um, when we look at it from today's perspective, but that was their reasoning at the time. They considered that he made a mistake, and although tragic, it was not something in which they wanted to terminate him from the position, which we can all sit there and say, well, that's a bit of a head-scratcher, but that's what happened. Historically, that is what happened. So what also happened was that at the Lansing level in the state legislature, there was the establishment of a committee by the House of Representatives to investigate the method of disposing of children at the state public school system to persons who seek them for adoption. So all of the laws were reviewed at the state level for all of the public school children in these institutions. And the state legislature established this committee in around February 6th of that year. And on March 7th, there was a story covering this that ran in the Gogobic Iron Spirit, and it was republished from Lansing, Michigan, that had happened in uh, late February when the outcome of this committee's investigation came out. And they wrote it this way. In the House yesterday, the minority report of the Committee on the State Public School, the institution from which Nellie Griffin was indentured to an unknown man by whom she was carried to Eaton County and murdered, was made. The committee found the internal management of the school to be excellent. It excuses the notion of Superintendent Newkirk and letting the girl go on the ground that the murderer, Canfield, had practiced an imposition which was not detected by the county agent. So essentially, the supervising board over Newkirk refused to accept his resignation. The state of Michigan reviewed it from a special committee from the House, and they determined that Newkirk was not at fault. But there's no indication here in any of the articles that they stiffened up any of the rules. And apparently there were rules in place that Newkirk did not follow, which would have been a a firing offense as it was. I mean, there were rules and regulations set in place that you not to release a child without verification. And what was interesting when I looked at the article about Newkirk, it appears he was only in that position for about a year because they only investigated a full year back of his work at the Coldwater School. So he's a new school superintendent in this institution back in the 1800s, and he makes a blunder by not following the rules to really verify And he took this guy on his own word and the way he presented himself. And essentially, he was hoodwinked because he didn't do any verification. And it all comes down to a very important lesson that we can learn from history, from the story of Nellie Griffin. Trust, but verify. And I tell you, from my years in real estate, and I've met with many attorneys over the years, and they would tell you this same message is often overlooked by a lot of people, even in modern day. And it's trust, 
but verify. And I think everything in real estate that I've ever had to do when you're selling homes, you know, you're taking um, information from a seller and you're working for a buyer or vice versa. And one side says something, always, always trust what verify. And many, many times you find things when you verify that don't align with what you were being told. Doesn't mean that the other party was lying, but they were leaving something out sometimes, or maybe something was uncovered that they didn't know about. For example, a home inspection. People say, oh, the home is in great shape, lived here for 20 years. Well, always get a home inspection. Just a side example, because guess what? You might find something that even the homeowner living there didn't know about that was a pending technical problem that would have erupted. I found the same case over, you know, 16 years in real estate. You know, you find a a furnace that was on the brink of uh, failure, or you find something that is not functioning properly, or you detect carbon monoxide leak or a gas leak that even the homeowner didn't know was there, and you can get it fixed, and uh, everyone is happy. You know, so trust but verify. And of course, in the case where we have criminals, I think the case with Nellie Griffin really gives us all something to really look at and say, wow, this was happening way back then, and the same thing is happening here today in present time. So when it comes to the protection of children, obviously the laws and regulations concerning children have been changed and stiffened over the years, but you still have to look. Somebody can't just walk in and adopt a child. And perhaps you might argue, well, there's way too much paperwork today to adopt a child. True, but um, it's all about trust but verify too, you know. And I think uh, for the protection of the child, you've got to weigh heavily in one in that direction for the safety and protection of children. So it's a very interesting story from history. It's a sad case. Nellie was buried at the Coldwater School. When I checked to try to find where she was buried, there's apparently an old cemetery next to the Coldwater School there, and that's where she's uh, interred. Canfield went to prison for life. And there's a few mentions of him. There's one article that came out that someone went to go visit him in late February. And they, rather than interview him about the crime, they asked him about his family. And all the guy kept saying was that he wanted to work. Can you tell the the warden to let me work? And I guess they weren't letting him work in the yard because they knew the other prisoners would probably kill him. Um, So they kept him isolated in a cell. And the article tells about his family here and it's kind of sad. I mean, he said his his father's name was Seneca Canfield. He lived in Redding Hillsdale. But it's more of a rambling, you know, uh, in this whole article. And they they just posted all this rambling. He said he had two brothers and a half-brother. He had two sisters and three half-sisters. My brother... Adelbert E. Canfield lives in Scott Station, which is Scotts, Michigan. The last I heard of my other brother, Hubert, was that he resided in Garrett, Indiana. My half-brother, Charles, lives in California, and so forth. One of my sisters married a man named Britton, and he's just rambling on about, you know, who his sister's married and that sort of thing. And um, they describe that the old murderer's eyes filled with tears as he told who his relatives were, and he seemed to like to talk rather than to be left alone. He begged again and again to be set to work, and after a promise had been given him that a word would be said for him, his face lightened up a little, and he looked eagerly after the retreating forms with his face close pressed against the cold iron bars of the cell. So they just walked away from him and left him down there. And uh, apparently he died in prison, from what I understand. So that concludes the sad case of Nellie Griffin and all of the surrounding circumstances. What do you think about this? I'd be curious to know. This is a very peculiar case. You know, you can... uh, 
I'll share this on social media. If you have some thoughts about it, yeah, go ahead and uh, put your your opinion about this this whole case. I'd love to hear it. Or you can message me on michaeldelaware.com and tell me your thoughts about the Nellie Griffin case. Or maybe even suggest other cases that I look into that I can tell. This one um, happened in Diamonddale, where she was murdered. It also connects the city of Coldwater. And, of course, the railroad was part of the story as well. And kudos to the conductor and the brakeman for stepping up and identifying. And, and it was fortunate that they were in the vicinity still, you know, because sometimes they travel up and down the railroads. It was fortunate that they were there at the time being questioned about uh, the identity of the young girl. And apparently they had enough sharp memory to help them make a break in the case and find her killer. So it's a very fascinating story. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating tale of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.